Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new Smart Firefighting mini-series created during the Phase 5 of the First Challenge, hosted at the Muscatatuck Urban Training Center. The First Challenge focus is to produce marketable prototypes that demonstrate indoor localization tracking of first responders within one meter accuracy without any pre-deployed infrastructure. Many of you heard stories from Phase 4, and here in Phase 5, the challenges were increased by including multiple responders, longer durations, and longer distances. In these conversations, you will hear from many of the entrepreneurs, first responders, and team members involved that address these challenges and opportunities of X, Y, and Z axis tracking from multiple perspectives around scalability, usability, affordability, and more. This challenge is administered by the Indiana University Crisis Technology Innovation Lab and funded by the NIST Public Safety Communication Research PSCR Division. Also, consider putting the NIST 5x5 conference on your calendar, located in Chicago, June 25th to 27th, 2024. Enjoy this deep dive into first responder tracking technology, and please reach out with your thoughts. We are sitting here in the HQ at the first Phase 5 Challenge here in Muscatatuck, Indiana. And I have the pleasure of sitting alongside Gary McCarrer, Senior Public Safety Advisor with the First Net Authority. Gary, how you doing? I'm doing great, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's good to have you here. It's sort of hard to explain this place. I would tell people, Muscatatuck, Indiana, and they're like, what? Like, where? And, you know, you weren't here for Phase 4. Right. Um, is this your first time here? It's my first time here, and the best way I could describe it, it's Disaster City, right? Mm. Think of a disaster, and they have a prop for it here, right? I mean, in essence, and it's, it seems to be really well done. I mean, you walk around here, and there are props and buildings, and you could create a storyline around all sorts of stuff. I mean, I saw out there there's uh, camels. Yeah. Um, to represent different animals that are represented around the world. Yep. You get just a little bit of everything. <laughs> yeah, we did uh, this morning, they did operations in a, in a burn building, a typical burn building that most fire folks had. We were in an old uh, prison this afternoon doing operations. So, I mean, and they have everything in between. There's railway incidents, they have turned over rail cars. So, they did a really nice op. Uh, nice opportunity for first responders to get here and get, get their hands so on. So, in your words, what is the first? competition challenge like what what's going on here and and why is this important that that we're addressing and addressing this what the first challenge from my perspective is is really the essence of what FirstNet was built around right bringing technology to public safety in ways that we've never been able to do before today's challenge involves location-based services and accuracy finding firefighters and other public safety folks in buildings when um, they're in buildings operating. You know, as we've talked before, I was in the fire service a long time, and I can't describe the sheer terror standing in front of a burning building at 2 o'clock in the morning, and bad things happen, and you don't know where your people are. This is designed to make sure that other generations of, of fire officers don't have to go through that. And that's why, you know, and now we have the technology to pull all this off with, you know, broadband networks, piping that information back out to incident commanders. A lot of the devices that we are they're putting through the challenge today also have, bi can have biometrics involved in it. So it all heightens up to make it safer for responders to do their job. I mean, you mentioned, and this from a FirstNet perspective, especially the, the networks and the ability to pass data. I mean, speak to me more about that from the ability to you know, we now have more infrastructure networks that allow us to move this information. Like, what, 
What does that mean now from an operational perspective for entrepreneurs and, sure. and for firefighters? Well, as you know, we just celebrated our fifth, the end of the fifth year of our first operating period with our contract partner, AT&T, in March of this year, which means that they had to build out a number of, of sites that all the states identified early on through the opt-in process, which means we finally have this network. And before, we couldn't pipe data around because the carriers would not give that to us. Now that FirstNet is the market disruptor, we have a program, we have a pretty robust network. It's not perfect yet. We don't have ubiquitous coverage, you know, from sea to shining sea, but we're working on that. So that gives public safety now the opportunity to be more data-centric than ever before. And in real time, collect data that's going on in front of them in places you can't see and pushing it back so incident commanders can have great situational awareness and make good decisions to keep both the citizens and the firefighters and, and other public safety folks safe. You said the word situational awareness, and I've heard uh, Dr. Richard Gassaway speak a lot about that and Bart Van Leeuwen as well. They speak a lot about, you know, you hear companies talk about, oh, this will give you situational awareness. But I know they, they speak a lot on like, you don't just, situational awareness doesn't just happen. You don't just all of a sudden snap a finger and have it. There's a lot that goes into developing the awareness and the context and getting the right data at the right time at the right place. In your words, what does situational awareness or obtaining and developing and, and having situation, what situational awareness on the fire ground mean to you? And you're right. It just doesn't happen at the snap of a finger. It, it takes a lot of people working really hard for a long time to say, okay, what information do you need to make better decisions? And, you know, when I first started with FirstNet, our engineers started talking about information, like, wouldn't, wouldn't this be nice to know, like, public safety never made good decisions before we had data networks. Well, we, we've always made good decisions, but it could always get better. And so, for example, you know, cancer's a big problem in the fire service. Can you imagine if we could monitor the air that firefighters are in the ambient environment firefighters are working at. So we have real data to know what they're exposed to. And we can collect that. You know, that's the aspiration, is to make sure that you understand your working environment. And, and again, you just don't show up in front of an emergency operation on some idle Tuesday and say, hey, I need this stuff. It takes a lot of people working really hard. And I think that's one of the things that I've been impressed about more than anything. Again, did a long career in the fire service, but I never realized how many smart, dedicated folks there are working in IT and, and trying to make, you know, public safety's life better. And that that's really, you know, what I've seen throughout this process and what we're experiencing here today. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's pretty cool. And you see sort of the magic in the room of, I mean, here there's, there's six remaining teams and they all are driven by this end goal to help enhance public safety operations. Just kind of speak on, not specifically about the teams, but what have you liked about the teams, the ingenuity, the, the way that they're approaching the problems, the team spirit? Like, what about the teams here is, is catching your eye? Well, there's a couple of teams in specific, and I won't identify them, obviously. But again, they don't have any pub, they, they've worked with public safety, but they're not public safety folks, so to speak. And it's how they overcome obstacles. You know, one group. They realized that their, their location services wasn't as accurate as they thought it should be, right? So then, you know, so it went from a belt-mounted solution to a belt-boot-mounted solution. And then once they got that accuracy down, they realized that, 
you know what? You need a building map to better locate people, right, in a building. So they used LIDAR to do mapping on the go. Then they realized that LIDAR didn't work in a smokeville environment, so they used thermal imaging LIDAR. So, you know, that progress of just overcoming the obstacles to get to the end objective to me has just been overwhelming. Mm. And, and all the teams have done that in one fashion or another. Yeah. No, it has to be an iterative process. And I think one of my favorite things about being here is is shooting the shit with the first responders yeah. and the firefighters and the law enforcement here and, and really just asking them, I mean, about what are your thoughts in terms of how this technology integrates to your PPE? What, you know, where, where would you like it mounted? Uh, you know, or how do you approach incident command? Like, why is this important to you? And we talk a lot about this with entrepreneurs, but especially of the importance of just going and hanging at the firehouse, oh. going and breaking bread and talking shop to just get that perspective. Because it's easy to just stand in front of a whiteboard and talk about how your idea is the best, but it's all for none if you're not actually getting first responder engagement. Well, and you know, and, and you say that, and that's one of the exciting things we're doing in, with the First Night Authority. I do national fire programs for the authority, and I have 13 folks on my team, and they're really smart folks, right? I have guys who retired out of LA City down to a small rural fire department. Um, and everything in between. So I think between all of us, we have over 200 years of experience in the fire service. But what we realize is that we're all retired, right? And we could guess right 80% of the time in the needs of the fire service. But this job's too important for 80%. We need 100%. So this year, what we've done is we've developed what we call an operational needs assessment. And we've been going throughout the country asking firefighters how they would operationalize broadband services in a structural fire environment. Because let's face it, the cell phone is the form factor we have today. And never in my career was I in a burning building saying, son of a bitch, I wish I had a cell phone, <laughs> right? It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. We have to figure out what that is. And the only way we'll know that for any certainty is to ask the fire service. So we've been going around the country doing lots of these. We've had some very good individual fire departments. Tulsa Fire has done one with us. Chesterfield County Fire in Virginia has done one with us. And then we've done a FRI. We're going to do some at VCOS. We're going to do it at TSI in December. And the reason I mention that is because if anybody who's listening to this are going to us, we need your help. Because what we hope to do is get really good, clean data and then take that and some of our investment dollars, go to academia and industry and say to them, here's what the fire service said they need. And what that does for us, and the collective us as the fire service, is uses the fire service's voice to get service things made for them. That way you don't have to worry for the, you know, wait for the fourth generation, you know, to get things done. You know, you start off listening to firefighters, investing in firefighters and getting them the tools they need. And I know when, when FirstNet first came on the map, there was this whole major push to get a lot of the infrastructure built out. And, and now a lot of the network is built out. Right. Obviously, there's there's more, but I know there's this kind of constant, you, you mentioned in the operational needs assessment, but there is this ongoing, I guess you could say, bucket of money right. that needs to be reinvested into these needs. And I guess sort of that, you know, now that the network is there and there are these needs, what's the next one to three years look like in your perspective well, in terms of... we're starting out in the first six months of 24, going state to state to state, talking about coverage. And we're calling them coverage workshops, basically. And very similar to what we did at the beginning, we'll be inviting you know, stakeholder groups to sit down and tell us 
okay, what we've done is okay, but where, where, where have we missed the mark? So that we can begin to think strategically about you know, places that don't have good coverage and should have good coverage. So we can begin identifying that. And as I think we've talked before, you know, terrestrial tower sites are not going to be the final answer for coverage. There's going to be lots of other answers to that. But we, we still have to work in the terrestrial world. So like I say, the first six months of this year, we're going to go out on a listening tour throughout the country to all 50 states and six territories. And then our board of directors is going through the methodology of how we go about funding uh, additional tower sites and coverage. I appreciate the thoroughness of that. And, and you're, you're practicing what you're preaching. You're, you're, you're going and talking and you're, you're sitting down and listening to needs and then applying those needs with a methodology to put money where it's most needed. Yeah. Well, we've always been for public safety by public safety, right? And we can't, we can't meet that goal and we can't pay you lip service to it either. Yeah. So if that's our motto, we always have to come back to public safety to make mm -hmm. sure what we're doing meets their needs. Talking about meeting their needs, the evolving needs, I know one thing that we were talking about earlier was just the dynamic of radios versus cell phones or data, and then also just like the whole dynamic of push to talk sure. and how that can be sort of utilized in different ways, and especially from a community risk reduction CRR perspective. Yep. Tell me more about what's going on and your, your kind of perspective yeah, around that. Yeah, it's really interesting because when I came to the FirstNet program at the beginning, I was told everybody involved in the program, we've got a voice network. We need a data network. And, and technically, I was correct. <laughs> but what I found out in the last three or four months is that the fire service seems to be increasingly curious about the push-to-talk options that we have. And, you know, you talk about the community risk reduction community. That's probably one of the few segments of the fire service infrastructure that we have that can truly exploit everything we have today. You talk about, you know, inspectional services, taking a, a smartphone, connecting it through LMR, so that it, now they have, uh, you know, a fairly inexpensive device. There's, there's metro-sized departments who have taken their LMR uh, radios, putting the, put all those resources back into emergency services, and then provided their, their inspectional services folks with smartphones that are linked through their LMR system and utilize push-to-talk. So they're still connected, but now they have a tool to take pictures of violations, they have a tool to you know, record things that are important to the community. So they have this multifaceted tool at a less, a less expensive option, and, and the resources are, can be pumped into emergency services where it may be benefit people more. I um, mean, we're seeing that time and time again. We're seeing places that have, you know, large, usually university towns that have large presence of, you know, sporting events. And they may have student folks involved in the EMT activities, giving them a push-to-talk, again, just an LTE push-to-talk device that's very inexpensive rather than an $8,000 portable radio to do their job. So all of those types of things are available today in the community risk reduction area that, you know, we hope to talk to, to those folks this year and, and really have them exploit that to, to enhance CRR as well as, you know, help the revenue stream of the fire. Well, it seems like another great capability that it ties into the how can we leverage all the resources that we have and, and utilize them, kind of squeezing the line entirely 
or is this a sort of a force multiplier capability of doing more with less? While it all sounds great, what you just said, I'd love to hear your perspective on sort of the the actual change management of that. I mean, that all what you just talked about, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear someone like Chief Baker from Tulsa talking about how they're doing it or, you know, Commissioner Teal, just some of these different names, how they're doing it and why this is important. But at the same time, you still have to overcome this is what we used to do and that is something different. And, you know, this, I, you know, it's too, compu- well, too confusing. It, it really is. You know, it's funny you say that. I was recently at a conference talking to a guy who ran comms for a state fire marshal's office. And they gave all of their inspectors the, the proverbial $8,000 portable radio. And we got to talking about, you know, giving them first that push to talk. And, you know, the last time they talked about doing anything with portable radios, the inspectors were up in arms because it was their lifeline. But they can check in the network and see that a lot of the inspectors never turned the radio on in 12 months, right? So, you know, it's, it's over-resourcing at some point. So, but, but if you're a device that does the exact same performance for you, you know, everybody's still protected. Yeah. So, um, you know, I know... Another thing that we had talked about, and maybe you, you kind of touched on it a bit, but the idea of form factors. You know, when you say, we have, we have Michael Varney here to our left, an, another senior public safety advisor with FirstNet. Uh, just, first off, I love your team, by the way. It's always fun working with all of you. Good group of um, people. It really is good group of people. And you're, you're always all over the place, yeah. all everyone. Like, you look around, it's like, there's someone from FirstNet. But I think it's, it's a testament to, to your team just showing up and yep. being there. But form factor. Um, just two words, form factor. Earlier I asked you situational awareness, but form factor, what does that mean to you and how does that tie into how we're developing and innovating for public well, safety? Well, it means of what the device looks like, right? And how, how you tactically manipulate it in the field. I mean, we all know portable radios and we've done great work with portable radios on knob size and you know being able to use it with a hand or gloved hand and things of that nature. Think of SCBAs, right? You know, the knob locations, the knob shape, the knob's color. So, but what's that LTE device look like? And because we've never used it, we're building that from the ground up, right? And, and today, today's operations that we've observed are a perfect example of that, right? You had some folks that their solution was an ankle bracelet, right? You had some folks that the solution was mounted to their helmet. And quite literally... Everything in between yeah. on the human body. So we're still figuring that out. But the way we understand that, and it, it, it ties back to us being all over the place, is asking the fire service what it is that they need and how are they going to use it, right? One of the helmet-mounted solutions, and again, I remember you know, when, when back in the day, you had leather helmets, and then you didn't have leather helmets. And then you had leather helmets, right? And, and it all got back to weight, right? And the fatigue factor on the neck muscles because we're, there's nothing you do in your daily life outside the fire service that builds those, those muscles up. And so the helmet-mounted solutions is, is really important, to me at least. Of, you know, I, and I asked some of the participants today, you know, how heavy is that? And they're all seasoned firefighters that are going through these exercises. And, you know, so... How fatigued do you think you'd be at the end of an operation? And those are important questions for us to continue to ask to make sure that whatever the device is gets accepted well into the industry. Yeah, it needs to be 
purpose built and designed for a first responder to actually use. And the podcast I did earlier with uh, Lieutenant Brian Bailey from Columbus FD, he mentioned that if it's something that needs to be added on extra, um, sort of as they're suiting up, it's unlikely that right. they're going to do it. And granted, I hear a lot of times certain entrepreneurs saying, oh, just, you know, just, just clip this on or, you know, just plug this in or you just add this on. And yeah, it sounds great in a, even in a, in a training environment, like here in Muscatuck, like this is still as real as this is, it's still simulated. It's not, Absolutely. it's not two in the morning when you're sleeping and all of a sudden you got to get to a call as fast as possible. Yeah. I remember when past devices first came on the scene, I literally saw dozens of these things being thrown out of second floor windows because nobody could figure out how to turn, turn them off, right? <laughs> but that's the crux. That we're, we're trying to figure out what this century's past device looks like and how it best serves public safety. And armed with those mistakes in the past, we can't, it, it's too important that we can't duplicate our past mistakes. We've got to make sure that we're lock solid for those products as we move forward. Well said. Well, Gary, if I could give you a, a final opportunity for a, a mic drop, it could, be a, it could be a quote, a question, a challenge, but anything else you would love to leave with us here today. Sure. Anybody who's listening who's involved in the fire service, you've got to help us help you, right? We have a dedicated group of people who understand the job of the fire service and have dedicated most of their adult lives to the fire service. Now we want to turn that around and help the folks who are now doing it. And the only way we do that is by listening and hearing what your needs are, what you like, what you don't like. And we truly take this job very seriously and plow that information back into a whole massive database and try to make things better for the fire service. So if you have an ever have an opportunity to sit in on something that the FirstNet Authority is doing, please take advantage of that because we can only make this as good as the information as you give us. Well said, Gary. We appreciate what you're doing. Keep up the good work and look forward to more collaboration in the future. Thanks. Appreciate your opportunity. Thanks for listening to today's episode. What did you think? What'd you learn? Hopefully something, right? Please reach out on social media with your thoughts on this episode and any other suggestions for future content. We look forward to capturing more important stories across public safety and are here at your service. Thank you.